You are listening to National Security Law Today. I am Harvey Rushikoff, the Senior Counsel of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, former chair of the committee. And administratively for this particular webinar, what we're hoping is that you can use the Q and A function and just post your questions as David is speaking and we'll be able to take them on the fly if there's any particular questions that come up that are relevant to uh, comments that David has made, uh, I'll make sure to inject them so David can address them for you. It'll be more interactive. As you know, we can't have our traditional breakfast and lunch series. So I encourage you since we can't see you for you to enjoy your lunch meal while you're listening to David because he's gonna give us lots of intellectual food for thought on FARA, as you know, the Foreign Agency Registration Act. We're expecting about 100 plus people, 120 in the seminar. So please feel free to start posing questions that you have as he is speaking. Uh, David uh, Lofton is a partner at Wigan and Dana, where he is the co-chair of the firm's National Security Practice Group. He is the former chief of the counterintelligence and expert control section, what we know as CES, uh, inside the National Security Division at DOJ where he oversaw the enforcement of FARA and the investigation and prosecution of offenses concerning US export control and sanctions law, <laughs> espionage, the theft of trade secrets, uh, what we now know as economic espionage, cyber intrusions by nation states and their proxies, and the unauthorized retention and disclosure of classified information. Uh, Mr. Lofton also previously served as chief of staff to the deputy attorney general the assistant, because he was an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia and special trial attorney to DOJ's fraud section. Uh, full disclosure, uh, David is also heading up uh, an American Bar Association uh, National Task Force on FARA. Uh, I am serving on that task force in a, in a very small capacity. But David, it's hard to think of someone who is more conscious and understands this statute than David. So we're very, very lucky to have him. I've known him for a number of years and is a, as we all know, an extraordinarily well-respected attorney and uh, a, a alumnus from the Department of Justice. Um, so David, we're sort of focused this today, we have about 60 minutes on the Foreign Agency Registration Act. And as you know, this act though is a bit sleepy. When I first started, at, at, I would say at the Bureau, this is not a major act that we would focus on. But increasingly, uh, this has become a very prominent act that the department has been using in a number of very kind of well-publicized cases. So I'm sort of hoping that you just could kick off and say, um, why now? Why, why has the enforcement become so much more aggressive, I would say, in the last few years? Well, it's true to quote the old uh, car commercial, this is not your grandfather's uh, Foreign Agents Registration <coughs> Act. Um, and as the inspector general observed in a 2016 audit, um, enforcement of the act had become a little sleepy. Um, as chief of CES, I reinvigorated it um, across the waterfront of our enforcement authority. And that enforcement surge has continued in spades um, in the three years since I've left. It's fair to say now, I think that enforcement by the Justice Department of FARA is the most aggressive it's been in, <clears throat> in decades. And uh, most folks see it in its most visible form in recent high profile criminal prosecutions like the Michael Flynn case. <clears throat> Flynn wasn't charged, he, wasn't, he didn't plead guilty to a fair offense, he pled guilty to a false statement to the FBI, but in, in uh, his plea agreement, the department insisted and he agreed to admit in writing that he had also uh, engaged in violations of, of FARA by making materially false statements and omissions in FARA filings with the Justice Department concerning the Turkish government's involvement in his business operations and in an op-ed he published in The Hill, which obscured the role of the Turkish government. Um, other high profile recent cases involved the Paul Manafort case, who pled guilty to violating FARA in connection with acting on behalf of Ukrainian government entities and by making false statements to the Justice Department in response to an investigative inquiry. Um, the most recent prosecution is one involving someone closer to the president, uh, Elliot Broidy. Uh, he pled guilty to a conspiracy to violate FARA by agreeing to lobby U.S. government officials, including the president, 
to drop civil forfeiture proceedings in connection with the MDB case in Malaysia. He, he agreed to lobby the president on behalf of a Chinese government official. So those are, <clears throat> those are prominent data points. And most people think that's the only manner in which the statute is enforced. But um, enforcement is also manifested in less visible ways. Um, even structurally, the Department of Justice has, and the FBI have reorganized themselves to target malign foreign influence in a more coordinated way. There's a new deputy in CES that focuses on FARA. The FBI created a foreign influence task force in 2017 to more coalesce its disparate um, resources. And we see it in, in more regulatory enforcement. And so one thing I want um, everybody participating in today's program to know is that, you know, law firms themselves, lawyers, we as lawyers are, are subject to the scope of this statute. It doesn't just apply to lobbyists or public relations firms and, and registration by law firms as well as commercial entities has picked up considerably. The department recently noted that there are now twice as many registrants under FARA at the end of 2019 anyway, as there were in 2016. And as you, you pointed out, uh, the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, Adam Hickey, has re recently given some speeches <coughs> in which he's emphasized the department's focus and interest in this area of the law. So maybe what you can do to help us out is just give us a brief overview of what the origins and purposes of the statute are. Right, so this is a federal statute that requires quote unquote agents of a foreign principal engaged in certain specified activities to register with the Department of Justice and to comply with a panoply of related disclosure obligations. And in a nutshell, if, if you come within the definition of an agent of a foreign principal, then you have to register unless an exemption from registration applies. It has a colorful history. Uh, FARA was enacted in 1938 in response to Nazi propaganda and uh, German subversive activities in the United States. It wasn't just the public rallies in Madison Square Garden that we see <clears throat> grainy images of. Um, in uh, enacting the legislation, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and early in its history, it was um, <clears throat> the State Department, not the Department of Justice, that had oversight over uh, FARA. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee stated in its report, quote, we believe that the spotlight of pitiless publicity will serve as a deterrent to the spread of pernicious propaganda. And <clears throat> that may seem antiquated prose, but I think it captures the uh, environment at the time. And, and, and that statement you know, from 1938 is not that dissimilar, Harvey, from statements recently made by, by the Department of Justice um, in <clears throat> a speech that uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Adam Hickey in NSD gave at another conference just a few weeks ago, and Adam uh, oversees from the NSD front office the FARA enforcement problem. He said that the problem set that FARA was meant to address was covert efforts to influence policy and public opinion or to subvert our democracy by sowing division and otherwise distorting the marketplace of ideas. That's where the department is. <clears throat> um, we've seen it in. Um, some prosecutions recently, um, for example, one of the prosecutions the special counsel Mueller's team brought was against the Internet Research Agency. Um, and even in that charging document, the department chose to enunciate uh, the purpose of the Foreign Agents Registration Act so that the U.S. government and the American people are informed of the source and the identity of persons attempting to influence U.S. public opinion policy and the law. So that gives you a sense of, of where they're coming from. Um, since 1938, there have been a few amendments to the statute. It was amended in 1966 to take it beyond propaganda activities, expanding it to lobbying activities, uh, consulting activities. And last amendment of any note occurred in 1995 when FARA was amended as part of the enactment of the Lobbying Disclosure Act. Um, <clears throat> as you pointed out, FARA is administered and enforced by the National Security Division and specifically by my former section, the Counterintelligence and Export control section, there's a unit within CES, the FARA unit that handles the day-to-day -day operations. Um, FARA is not a criminal statute in and of itself. It's not part of Title 18, uh, but there are criminal penalties for certain violations. I think that's just important for me to understand. It's not per se a criminal statute, but if there's some willful violations, you may have right. some criminal penalties kicking in. So I guess one of the issues that people want to focus on first is like, uh, 
what is sort of the requirements of quote an agent of a foreign principal? Uh, how do we define that? And how does the statute go about sort of operationalizing that? So what FERA does is that it requires some individual or entity coming within the definition of an agent of a foreign principal to register with the Department of Justice within within 10 days of agreeing to become an agent and before beginning to perform any registrable activities, unless an exemption applies. And I would underscore that the, it's the mere agreement to perform registrable activities that triggers a registration requirement. If I enter into an agreement with a foreign government to do something in the United States that might otherwise come within the scope of the statute, and I, and I never actually begin to perform those activities, I may still have an obligation to register. And by the way, there's no de minimis threshold here as there is under the Lobbying Disclosure Act. Um, if I put you know, my big toe into the water of registrable <clears throat> activity and the department learns about it, um, they're gonna come after me. Um, if you have to register, you have to also file detailed disclosure reports about every six months that detail what you've been doing in the prior six months on behalf of the foreign principal. If you're engaged in propagating content in interstate commerce within the United States um, in what are called informational materials, which I'll mention in a minute, you have to include a conspicuous statement um, in those printed materials or if they're broadcast or in social media that discloses prominently that you are an agent of that foreign principal and the documents about your agency relationship are on file with the Department of Justice. Um, this term informational materials, which features broadly in FERA, bizarrely, is nowhere defined in the statute or in regulations. Um, recently on the, on the FERA unit's website, they provided an explanation um, describing information materials as items in both physical and electronic form that an agent disseminates in interstate commerce on behalf of the foreign principal. Well, that's pretty broad. And, and, and if you're propagating that content in the United States, you have 48 hours under current law to file copies of them with the Department of Justice. <clears throat> um, that's pretty onerous. Uh, the statute also requires registrants to keep and preserve documents and records that are subject to NSD, and by the way, by the FBI as well. Um, so it's a pretty demanding uh, disclosure regime. So David, I think for the people listening, the attorneys and their clients and even themselves, what triggers, what, what are the triggers <clears throat> for registration under the agency concept? So the department is gonna examine whether as un under the facts available to it, um, a U.S. party uh, comes within the definition of an agent of a foreign principal. The first thing they're going to look at is whether there is agency for purposes of FARA. And it's broader uh, than agency under common law, under the restatement. Um, from their perspective, you're acting as an agent. They're going to examine agency in the context of whether you're acting as an agent um, or at their order, request, or under the direction or control of a foreign principal. Those are all terms embedded in the statute, whether you're doing it either directly or through any other organization or individual. So if you're acting as an agent of an agent on behalf of a foreign principal, you could also have an obligation to register. And they're going to look at multiple factors in assessing agency. These are all very case-specific, granular, factual examinations. <clears throat> they're going to be examining um, whether this type of direction and control exists. And, and the term control in regulations is broadly defined to include mere possession of the power to determine the policies or activities of a person. So if I enter into a contract with a foreign government, say, to do something in the United States and by the provisions of that contract, they have authority, say, to review something uh, preparing at their behest. Um, even if nothing else ever happens, uh, the department, and I've seen them do this, will zero in on that language that merely gives them the power to exercise control. Um, but a formal contract isn't required to establish agency. They can deduce it inferentially from other circumstantial evidence. Um, recently, in response to um, you know, some pulsing by the regulated community, the Justice Department issued a white paper on agency, which is available on their website, uh, which is a helpful guideline um, for how they're thinking about it right now. So agency will be the first point they look at. Then they'll look at whether you're acting on behalf of a foreign principal or not. And that term is very broadly defined. It's not just foreign governments or foreign political parties, but it also is broad enough to include foreign businesses or any other foreign non-governmental entity. 
It can include an individual outside the United States. Um, and I've seen them just do that in a response uh, to one of my <clears throat> clients. Um, so the term foreign principal can essentially apply to any client outside the United States we as lawyers might have. <clears throat> um, government of a foreign country is broadly defined. It's not just a, def, you know, a, a, a de jure government. It could be anybody seeking to exercise control over some portion of territory. It could be an insurgent group, um, you know, a guerrilla group in some country that you are recognizing. It doesn't have to be recognized by the United States. Um, and lastly, they're going to be looking at whether uh, you are engaged in one of several categories of conduct um, specified in the statute as triggers for registration. Um, the most prominent one for folks to understand is political activities. Um, if you're engaging in political activities on behalf of a foreign principal, you're going to have to register an, <clears throat> unless an exemption um, exists. And let me just read quickly the definition of political activities, because this is really sort of the core classic area of conduct. It's we've any act We've all received a question from Nick Rostow, an old friend of the committee, of what constitutes the re registrable activity requirement? Yeah. So li listen to this and think about how broadly this scope is. Any activities that the person engaging in believes will, or that the person intends to in any way, influence any agency or official of the US government or any section of the public within the United States with reference to formulating, adopting, or changing the domestic or foreign policies of the United States, or with reference to the political or public interest policies or relations of a government of a foreign country or a foreign political party. So it has two facets to it, whether you're trying to influence US decision makers and lawmakers, or you're trying to influence public opinion with respect to US policy or some aspect of the foreign government. Very broad. Um, examples of this, you know, are, are myriad, but, you know, lobbying activities, publishing an op-ed, other actions to influence press coverage, using social media, trying to influence thought leaders. If you were trying to influence a think tank or other thought leaders to um, come within the definition. Um, so political activities has a broad sweep. Other conduct triggers um, are acting as a public relations council or a publicity agent, um, acting as an information service employee um, that was used as, a, as one of the hooks for requiring Russian media organizations to register or acting as a political consultant uh, for lawyers. I want you to be aware that this, this conduct trigger is very broad. It's also a potential trigger for lawyers. Uh, political consultant is defined as any person who engages in informing or advising any other person with reference to the domestic or foreign policies of the United States or the political or public interest policies or relations of a foreign country or a foreign political party. Think of all the Washington law firms that do that every day. <clears throat> and um, I saw it recently applied to a law firm um, that I happen to be representing that they decided needed to register. <clears throat> um, other conduct triggers involve collecting or dispensing money, uh, representing the interests of a foreign principal before an agency or official of the US government. If you're, if you're setting up meetings for a foreign principal with US government officials or members of Congress or congressional staff, then you have triggered that particular conduct inquiry. So David, uh, as you know, we, we always seem to attract an extremely experienced uh, audience. So one of the opinion, is one of the questions that's been generated is quite specific <laughs> and to put you on the spot, we'll test your facility with the uh, actual statute. Um, in your opinion, is the initiation of conduct of litigation Proceeding cells covered by 611C in the hole, one in the hole, or two in the hole. Am I not, and I'm not referring to lawyers, but the conduct of proxy litigation by, for example, corporate entities on behalf of foreign principals, or for example, a foreign government influences a corporation under its jurisdiction, in my reading, should not be a political activity or other registration activity. Would this answer change? if the enterprise is a foreign state-owned enterprise. Uh, what is your sort of quick reaction to that specific question? Um, you're, I had trouble hearing some of what you said. It sounded like there was some lit litigation involved on behalf of a foreign- Yeah, it's of conduct or litigation itself covered by C. <clears throat> right, so and we'll come back to this a little bit later. Um, um, so litigation on behalf, say, of a foreign government in the United States on its face would be political activities, right? You're trying to influence a U.S. government body. 
but among the exemptions we'll talk more about in just a few minutes is an exemption for legal representation under which um, undertaking litigation in the courts or some administrative agency on behalf of a foreign government or other foreign principal itself um, is exempt, but it's very narrowly tailored and there's risks of mission creep for lawyers that we need to be mindful of so that we're not leaving the safe harbor of that exemption and exposing ourselves <clears throat> to the need for registration. I guess part of that question is it's the old lawfare issue. If uh, a foreign entity is trying to use our legal system in order to influence some <clears throat> policy, yeah. and engage as a law firm, would that require a fire registration or is that just a- No, well, if, if, the, if the conduct were limited to litigation, regardless of what the ultimate purpose of the litigation was, um, the litigation itself and everything in furtherance of the litigation, presuming that the conduct is all confined to court filings or the work that lawyers do in litigation, <clears throat> that work would all be exempt. Uh, but one would have to be careful not to be engaged in ancillary activities, for example, um, talking to the news media about your case to you know, do rep reputation mitigation or furthering the interests of your foreign client through uh, you know, influencing media coverage of the case. Now we're getting into an area that, that is unprotected that could subject lawyers to registration. But if a lawyer holds a press conference concerning the litigation right. or, or, or decides to write an op-ed, Right. Right. The opinion that might require registration. Right. So we're getting into more Talmudic uh, levels of granularity now, which I know is familiar ground for you. Yes. Um, the the uh, the Department of Justice essentially has said um, that if you are uh, filing a lawsuit, say on behalf of a foreign government, <clears throat> it's like a one free shot rule. It seems to be, although this is not codified, you can have a press conference to announce the filing of the lawsuit because that's something that lawyers ordinarily do um, as lawyers. Um, but beyond that, you are <clears throat> at risk. If you're continuing to uh, you know, make public statements through the news media or causing others to make public statements, if you're writing op-eds, um, in essence, get engaged in a PR campaign on the side, ancillary to the litigation, that is unprotected registrable activity. <clears throat> and it means that when, if you're required to register as a lawyer, you're going to have to be disclosing your engagement agreement with your client, which is the holy of the holies for us, of course, as lawyers. And so um, it's problematic. Um, yeah, so you, you, your answer has already triggered another question, which we'll get to later by Max Camuro, an old friend, that the ambiguity yeah. or the expansiveness of the statute as giving some concern to practitioners, as you know, you are actually running the task force, which we'll get into at the end, of some of the issues and recommendations that might be made in order to uh, make the, uh, yeah. the statute more operational. But we'll get we'll be getting to that now. Yeah. What, what are some of the uh, DOJ enforcement tools, would you say? Under the right. So they are uh, regulatory and criminal in nature. I mentioned that the statute is administered by the National Security Division. <clears throat> On the regulatory side, um, the department um, is considerably more frisky now in conducting administrative investigations. What often happens is that someone will receive what they call a letter of inquiry, uh, which is a voluntary request for information and documents. Bizarrely, the National Security Division, unlike, for example, the Civil Rights Division or the Antitrust Division or the Environment and Natural Resources Division, does not possess authority to issue administrative subpoenas or what's sometimes referred to as civil investigative demand authority. So in the first instance, let's say if there's a news story raising a question about whether somebody ought to register, <clears throat> you'll get a letter of inquiry that propounds interrogatories and requests for documents. Um, it also requires the recipient to certify under penalty of 18 U.S.C. 1001, the false statement statute, that everything you're saying is true. Um, <clears throat> the Department has authority to conduct these inspections of books and records, as I mentioned, and the FBI is authorized by law to assist. Uh, that causes people to pucker up when FBI agents arrive at your <clears throat> office to look at your books and records. Um, they are considerably more aggressive now in sending out notices of deficiencies in filings, um, some benign, some not so benign. And um, <clears throat> for the first time in years, um, they are exercising in a far more muscular way a prohibition against continuing to act 
as an agent of a foreign principal 10 days after you get one of these deficiency notices unless you <clears throat> amend. Um, criminal investigation and prosecution, um, department is far more ready now to refer FARA investigations um, for criminal investigation. Um, Harvey, you mentioned criminal penalties. It's a felony uh, with a penalty of up to five years of imprisonment and a $250,000 fine for a willful violation regarding a failure to register or a false statement or omission of a material fact. And willfulness in the FARA context is defined essentially the same way as it is, say, in the export control or sanctions world under the US Supreme Court standard in Bryan. Basically, you're violating a known legal duty. If you knew you had an obligation to register and you didn't, for example, that would be a willful failure to register. Um, there are misdemeanor violations punishable by up to six months for a handful of other things, failure to include a conspicuous statement in informational materials, failure to disclose your foreign principal agency to the United States government if you're meeting, say, with U.S. government officials or in congressional testimony, um, deficiencies in registration statements. By the way, there's a the law imposes a prohibition on a contingency fee if it's associated with being engaged in political activities. Um, if you're promising a result through advocacy in a manner that's political activities um, and that you're getting a success fee, that's that's prohibited under FARA and punishable by a misdemeanor. <clears throat> and lastly, um, by statute, the department has authority uh, to, to obtain civil injunctive relief. That means they can go to court, the attorney general can go to court and ask for a court order compelling somebody to comply with FARA. Um, that had not been done since 1991 um, until a couple of years ago um, as part of this recent surge in enforcement. And so, you know, beginning in early 2015, um, a lot has happened that has changed the landscape of the Justice Department's enforcement of FARA, which brings us to today's program and why some of you may be interested in becoming more conversant. Uh, they've been sending out a lot more of these letters of inquiry. They're more plentiful, they're more demanding. Uh, there's more regulatory inspections of books and records. They're sending out more notices of deficiencies, more criminal investigations, referrals, and prosecutions. And as I mentioned, <clears throat> they used for the first time in a fascinating case in late 2018, they dusted off this civil injunctive relief authority that the inspector general had clobbered them over the head with for not having exercised more in a case where a Florida-based radio broadcasting company, which was broadcasting Sputnik programming under an agreement with Sputnik's Russian media state-owned enterprise parent was basically giving the middle finger to the Department of Justice and saying, we don't think we have to register. And so they filed action in federal court in Florida seeking a declaratory judgment that they didn't have to register. And the department counterclaimed under the Civil Injunctive Relief Authority. And it's an interesting opinion to read where the district court found on the papers for the Department of Justice um, and compelled uh, the reprobate um, company <laughs> to file, which they did begrudgingly. I think you used the Latin term. The department seems to be getting a bit more frisky and more <laughs> enforcement oriented on this issue. And I think it's also in the, the context that we've become much more sensitive to foreign influence in a variety of forums. And this is just another example of a tool that's being used. But um, one of the exactly. questions I just want to put in your head is that uh, Maurice Brookhart wanted to know is when we're thinking about the task force for reform, yeah. uh, how, will, how will these reforms, quote, uh, reflect the reality of our global economy and interactions as we have so much more interactions going on? Maurice yeah. sort of interested. But I guess the other question that we wanted to talk about today was the enforcement reaches are also for contact potentially outside of the US, right? I mean, this is quite expansive the way it's been interpreted. Yeah, it's a fascinating area of law. I mean, on its face, FARA is focused on conduct occurring within the United States. If you look at the statute and every um, delineation of the conduct triggers I mentioned before, each of them specify acting within the United States. Um, but as a practical matter, the department's position is that it can require registration for conduct occurring even outside of the United States that has or is intended to have effects within the United States. For example, activities to influence U.S. public opinion. Um, I saw um, a public relations guy's head nearly blow off a couple of years ago at another conference I co-chaired where uh, the deputy chief for FARA publicly stated that if you're a public relations firm in the United States with an office, say, in London, 
and you're engaged in um, a public relations campaign directed at the United States, um, you are within the scope of the statute. Um, so, so the department is going to look at any nexus to the United States. Um, interestingly, they have cited recently a 1940 Attorney General opinion by the distinguished uh, then Attorney General Robert Jackson, of course, who went on to become a Supreme Court Justice. I saw this cited in a footnote recently in an advisory opinion, and I remember being provided with it when I was chief of CES, and it's just fascinating. I won't get into the, the weeds of it, but um, uh, this was in 1940 before the United States entered World War II, and Jackson was responding to a request by the U.S. Postmaster General, which Harvey knows used to be a very high-ranking figure in the United States government. And he was responding to a request as to whether he had authority to, ex to exclude mail coming to the United States from Germany if it first be ascertained from the State Department that the foreign mailers of such have not complied with FARA. So the Postmaster General wanted to know, was there a FARA remedy to dealing with Nazi German propaganda coming into the United States <clears throat> by way of mail? Um, and Jackson found um, that there was such authority. Um, and if there's dissemination within the United States by an agent of a foreign principal acting within the United States, that would come within the scope of FARA. Uh, and the department is relying on that in part, which of course this has no presidential value. It's an attorney general opinion, um, but it's Robert Jackson. So it has, it is imbued with more, <clears throat> with more uh, sacred virtue and prominence. Um, but in the real world, um, to bring this up several decades, uh, we've seen this um, in some recent criminal prosecutions. One of the cases that Special Counsel Mueller's team brought was against the Internet Research Agency, <clears throat> this trolling farm that was used to sow division within the United States in 2016, among other things, by uh, creating false personas of people um, simpatico, say, to Black Lives Matter movements and other U.S. Um, um, groups to sow division. <clears throat> they were indicted um, for conspiracy to defraud the United States in violation of the general conspiracy statute, 18 U.S.C. 371, by impairing, obstructing, and defeating, in this case, the lawful functions of the U.S. Department of Justice in administering <clears throat> FARA. And the, if, you, if you look at the indictment, you can see that the, the nexus to the United States that they focused on included, for example, the use of social U.S. social media platforms. These are all U.S. tech companies, um, including the use of social media to, to produce and purchase and post advertisements advocating for and against certain presidential candidates or organizing political rallies in the United States. Some of the provisions of that indictment are just truly chilling. Uh, they also focused on the use of computer infrastructure in the United States. So that's a good example recently of how the department seized on that nexus as a jurisdictional grounds for um, charging Farah. Well, you, you always know it's always very powerfully persuasive anytime you quote Robert Jackson. So we have to that. <laughs> it just it's a conversation stopper. Nice to see that Bob Mueller's indictment is an indictment that keeps on giving because I think, as you know, they did an extraordinary amount of work kind of ferreting out these issues. So I guess the other area to think about, which we talked about, David, is so what are the exemptions? What stops you from having to? Have a fire registration. Right. So it's important from, for for lawyers like us to think proactively before we undertake engagements uh, that we think may be coming close to the line to examine whether um, what we're going to do might come within an exemption to insulate us from registration. And so, as I mentioned before, if you even if you meet the definition of an agency of a foreign principle, um, engaged in political activities, even um, you may still come within an exemption. But the burden pursuant to regulations is on the party claiming the exemption to demonstrate that they qualify. <clears throat> so there's several categories of exemptions, as you might imagine, foreign diplomats, consular officials and staff, they're exempt, foreign government officials who are engaged exclusively in activities that our State Department would deem to be within the scope of their official duties. <clears throat> um, importantly, there are a couple of exemptions for commercial related activity, uh, but they are narrowly defined um, and, and they are not available in circumstances where the activities are at the direction or control of a foreign government, or in one case, if they're directly promoting the public or political interests of a foreign government, <clears throat> that's a considerably more subjective standard. And the department is gonna look at the waterfront of information available to it, just because there's a 
there is an inadvertent coinciding of interest won't necessarily mean that you are directly promoting the public or political interest, but these are close judgment calls sometimes. Uh, legal representation, as we mentioned before, I'll say more about that in a minute. <clears throat> um, uh, there's an exemption for engaging only in furtherance of bona fide religious, scholastic, academic, or scientific pursuits, or the fine arts of U.S. think tanks often operate within that exemption. Uh, but that exemption is not available if you're engaged in political activities. So if a think tank um, is trying to operate within that safe harbor of an exemption, but it's engaged in political activities, uh, it's not going to avail itself of that exemption. Um, it's out of the safe harbor. <clears throat> It can't operate under that safe harbor if it's engaged in political activities. Uh, folks, who've folks who are engaged in lobbying activities and have registered under the LDA um, with the House or Senate clerks um, can obviate the need to register under FARA. Uh, but by statute, even the LDA exemption is not available if you're lobbying on behalf of a foreign government or a foreign political party, or, and this is a tricky area to navigate, by regulation, the LDA exemption is not available if the foreign government or foreign political party is, quote, the principal beneficiary of the agent's activities. And that can sometimes be a battlefield for um, contesting whether a registration obligation is being imposed. <clears throat> um, David, you might want to focus on that legal representation because you right. know, we will get to the famous Scadden case that got a lot yes. of popularity right. in the community. But why don't you walk us through <clears throat> that a bit for right. how you can avoid that sort of being tripped up? Right. So first of all, just to underscore, just because we're lawyers um, doing lawyer things doesn't mean we are insulated from FARA. It's not available uh, as an exemption just because you're a lawyer. <clears throat> here's what here's how the Department of Justice in a recently tweaked um, provision on their website explains this exemption. Uh, they say that the exemption applies to a lawyer who engages or agrees to engage in the legal representation of a disclosed foreign principle before any court or agency of the US government and doesn't engage in attempts to influence or persuade agency personnel or officials other than in the course of agency proceedings required by statute or regulation to be conducted on the record. It is a, is a, it is a somewhat obtusely worded provision. And so we have to sort of un, <clears throat> unpack it. Um, what is clear is that certain activities are not covered by this exemption, as we talked about before, any affirmative activities to influence U.S. public opinion. Um, it's not just lawyers doing this, but if you're coordinating it by a uh, public relations firm, it's not uncommon, say, for example, for a D.C. or New York firm uh, to retain a public relations firm on the side. And if you have, you may be tripping into FARA. Um, certainly direct outreach to the news media uh, gives you some exposure. <clears throat> outreach to policy level U.S. government officials to influence or intervene in a matter. If you have a pending piece of litigation that in and of itself might be um, exempt and you decide to try to put pressure, say, online prosecutors by bigfooting them to some policy Senate confirmed official in that agency, you have just exposed yourself to fair registration. <clears throat> um, advising foreign companies how to influence US government policy um, is another tripwire. I'll give you some examples of where the Justice Department has um, determined that the legal exemption is applicable. Um, on behalf of a client, foreign government uh, firm was evaluating the merits or initiating of initiating or defending against particular litigation. So, you know, just talking to the foreign government, for example, thinking of a foreign government client as at the apogee of potential risk, uh, certainly undertaking that litigation where there's an agreement to do it. Um, same with respect to representation in a civil litigation matter or a private arbitration, even if it's, even if it's on behalf of a foreign government, um, representing a foreign principal in an investigation or an enforcement proceeding by the Justice Department or some other U.S. government agency, um, attending meetings with DOJ officials to discuss a pending extradition request by a foreign government that a firm represented was deemed to be exempt. <clears throat> um, so to... David, so we had a question. Yeah. If I'm an NGO or a trade association being going and representing a foreign client uh, to discuss DOJ pending issues, that does not require registration or <coughs> this exemption? 
Well, if it's just the NGO as opposed to counsel for the NGO in a piece of litigation going to DOJ um, where there's an adversarial um, setting already, then the NGO couldn't take advantage of the of the um, of the legal exemption. <clears throat> They'd have to operate under some other exemption, and it and they may have some exposure. Um, if, you know, if, there, if an NGO tried to dissuade um, the Department of Justice on behalf of some foreign government. Uh, providing financial assistance to them to forgo some enforcement action, they almost certainly would be exposed to um, registration risk. There's other um, routine things we do as lawyers in Washington that uh, justice has determined to be exempt. Uh, if you're if you have a sanctions practice um, and you are you want to go to OFAC to ward off a sanctions designation of a client, or you want to engage in advocacy as to why that client should come off. The list is an SDN. They've said that you know that's exempt. Similarly, if you want to go to the Bureau of Industrial Security at the Commerce Department to try to get a client off the entity list, um, as long as you're operating within what they describe as established civil administrative procedures, that is, you're operating just within the chalk lines of what the regulations prescribe for how to appeal or contest some regulatory enforcement action, um, then you're exempt. Um, here are some examples recently where the Justice Department has ruled that lawyers were not exempt and had <clears throat> to register. And again, keep in mind that you know once you as a lawyer or a law firm are required to register, then there's a lot of stuff you're going to have to be disclosing, the engagement agreement, your fees. They'll let you redact your hourly rates, um, but they're not very <clears throat> amenable to redacting anything else. <clears throat> um, Efforts to shape public opinion on behalf of a client, um, as we've talked about, even if it's even if it's in connection with ongoing investigations or litigation, which itself might be exempt, um, is not going to be exempt from registration. Um, press releases, coordinating with PR firms, contacting contact with the new with the news media, um, uh, at the request of a client for an embassy in the United States, um, a law firm that was drafting potential responses to media inquiries had to register where those media responses ultimately were gonna be issued by the foreign embassy uh, and having to do with litigation uh, where the law firm was counsel of record, that was still judged to be registrable. Um, <clears throat> providing legal advice and analysis to a client foreign government on law and policy regarding matters and developments that concern and affect US relations with that foreign government, such as pending, pending legislation and executive decisions and policy. Um, that was recently included in an advisory opinion issued to a U.S. law firm that troubled a lot of law firms around town <clears throat> that do this every day. Um, providing a client for an embassy with written arguments against passage of legislation uh, in Congress was deemed to be registrable, even where the conduct at issue was just in privity between the, the law firm and the foreign government. It did not have any outward facing um, facet to it. Um, attending regular meetings between a client foreign embassies officials and um, that government's U.S. lobbyists where there was discussion about proposed legislation and legislative strategy was being discussed. The law firm was present for those discussions and that was cited as another data point requiring them to register. Or how about this? Sharing memoranda prepared by a U.S. law firm with a foreign government's U.S. lobbyists and U.S. public relations firm regarding pending legislation in Congress. That kind of coordination um, between a law firm and a uh, public relations firm or a lobbying firm on behalf of a foreign government <clears throat> um, was among the data points that justice focused on in requiring a firm to register. Um, another example involved lobbying of the US State Department to waive a rule precluding courts in one country from enforcing foreign tax laws. Even though this was adjacent to civil litigation, they found that that required registration. Um, or in a case that I um, uh, pursued myself, um, an effort to persuade department leadership to support a continuance in a criminal case on behalf of a foreign government, where the foreign government was not the party in that case, and for reasons concerning foreign policy and relations matters. This was the case where an attorney thought um, it might be useful to his client to begin making phone calls to senior department uh, justice officials to get them to <clears throat> intervene. 
So, David, so, David, your list of examples is going to be a wake-up call, I think, for many people <laughs> on this seminar because yeah. extraordinarily how expansive the department is taking this right. organization, right? right. I think you, we might want to just briefly, before we go on to what you're working on with the task force, but the cautionary tale yeah. concerning Scadden the case. Scadden, yeah. <clears throat> right. So Scadden is a good... Um, focal point uh, for lawyers to look at to see how the department thinks about these issues. So Skadden entered into a settlement agreement with the Department of Justice in January 2019. It's available on the department's website. And in it, Skadden admitted to acting as an agent of the government of Ukraine by contributing to a public relations campaign that was directed at selected members of the U.S. news media. And they also admitted to receiving multiple inquiries from uh, the ferry unit about Scadden's role <clears throat> in this public relations campaign. Um, and that a partner then at Scadden, this is what Scadden admitted in their settlement agreement, they admitted that a partner then at Scadden had made false and misleading statements to the ferry unit, which had led Scadden to conclude that it wasn't obligated to register uh, with the department. And as a result, Scadden, in addition to being required by justice, to register had to pay a penalty of $4.6 million, which was equivalent to the fees and expenses it had received for its work <clears throat> for Ukraine. Um, and that's not all. Skadden also had to commit itself to instituting, quote unquote, robust procedures for responding to future inquiries concerning its um, conduct from any federal agency and to ensuring FARA compliance in particular concerning its engagements on behalf of foreign clients. <clears throat> um, that settlement agreement was followed, not surprisingly, several months later by a criminal indictment of Greg Craig, who was the unnamed Skadden partner in the firm settlement agreement. <clears throat> and Craig was charged uh, with willfully falsifying and concealing material facts from the FARA unit in violation of 18 USC 1001, and also making false and misleading statements to the FARA unit in violation of criminal penalty provisions within FARA. <clears throat> um, there was a lot of pretrial litigation and out of it came the dismissal of that FARA count under, interestingly, the rule of lenity that Judge Amy Berman Jackson um, discussed in her ruling. And she dismissed it on the grounds that a letter that Greg Craig had allegedly sent to the FARA unit um, in connection with the investigation was not part of any FARA, formal FARA filing. That is to say, it wasn't a registration statement. It wasn't a supplemental statement filed under FARA. It was just a letter that he lodged. And she assessed under the rule of lenity, and she said it was a close call. That, that could not be a basis for a charge under FARA. So David, uh, for, so, it, David yeah. for our Yale Law School graduate, yeah. you might want to explain what the rule of lenity is. <laughs> anyway, the rule of lenity, in a nutshell, I think, uh, enables uh, judges to assess that if a law on its face is not clear enough, doesn't provide enough clarity and predictability to those who are impacted, uh, then essentially almost as an equitable matter, you know, the court can find that it can't be the basis for imposing a penalty. <clears throat> and so in this case, um, uh, the district court judge dismissed that count. Craig went to trial on the 1001 charge and he was acquitted at trial. Um, he was acquitted, although interestingly in the speech by Deputy Assistant Attorney General um, Hickey that I mentioned before just a few weeks ago, uh, without specifically referring to that case, um, he talked about um, how you know the department is going to lean in, lean into tough cases, even if they're hard cases, where they are righteous cases. And so I took from that, um, you know, a persistent view, notwithstanding the acquittal, uh, that the department regarded the Craig prosecution as a righteous case. And um, so beware to those of us who. Um, you know, transgress in the future. I guess we'll be looking forward to see whether, uh, I guess it's Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland will have a, a similar approach and guidance for the division to take these cases. Uh, we only, I know the time has flown because there's so much that's fascinating about Farah. So what I'd like to make sure though, was I know we thought we might discuss a little bit uh, the confusion over 18 USC 951, I think it might be more helpful in the last 10 minutes, and there's some questions related to it. Um, David, if we talk a little about where you see the potential reforms, uh, show a little leg as to what the task force is doing. We know it's not determinative. 
we'll rapidly go through the ABA process. But are, right. what are some of the issues you're seeing on your task force to, I would say, make this expansive statute clearer on its face? Right. <clears throat> well, first of all, um, let me point out that um, FARA has been the subject of several draft bills in Congress during the last couple of Congresses. Senator Grassley in particular has been a champion of reform legislation. Most recently in the last Congress, uh, I think it's S-1762. Um, it won't surprise anybody to know that the uh, soon to expire administration has not been a particular fan or interested in FARA reform uh, legislation, but um, there's every reason to believe that Senator Grassley will renew this effort. Um, meanwhile, as you pointed out, the ABA section on international law establishes task force to examine potential <clears throat> reforms. And, um, you know, the, the concrete is not uh, even moist yet, uh, but potential reforms that we are thinking about range from narrowing the scope of FARA uh, in itself to concentrate on agents in the United States acting on behalf of foreign governments and foreign political parties, which we think may take FARA back to its core purposes, um, trying to destigmatize FARA registration. It shouldn't be, you know, the mark of the beast um, for anyone to have registered as a foreign agent in compliance with US law. Yet we continue to see stigmatization as recently, by the way, in the NDAA uh, legislation that was passed by Congress uh, has several exclusions. You don't qualify for a PPP loan under the recently enacted legislation if you are required to register under FARA. <clears throat> um, we're looking at uh, ways to improve the transparency of how the Department of Justice interprets and enforces FARA. They could do a lot more, for example, like OFAC does uh, at the Department of Treasury to propound public understanding of the statute and how they enforce it. We're trying to look at vague language um, in the statute, some of its exemptions, for example, including the legal <clears throat> representation exemption. Uh, we'll take a look at whether the LDA exemption should be amended or tweaked. For example, you know, this principal beneficiary standard I mentioned before, so nebulous, should it be replaced with something more practicable? Um, we'll look at whether uh, new enforcement tools are appropriate for the Justice Department to employ, like administrative subpoena authority as a step down between criminal prosecution and doing nothing, um, whether civil fines should be authorized. Currently, the department has no authority to impose civil fines as a middle ground <clears throat> penalty. Uh, we'll look at uh, the definition of informational materials. I'm sorry, the absence of a definition of informational materials and think about maybe there should be a definition of informational materials. Um, those are some of the reforms we're, we're thinking about. Um, and hopefully will contribute to uh, Congress's view of what should inform FARA reform legislation in the 117th Congress. So, uh, Renee, um, Doppelink asked an interesting question. Have you seen, or when you were at Justice or the, going forward, has enforcement increased for law firms doing pro bono activities, assuming related to some type of connection to U.S. policy law, regulation <laughs> standard? An example would be, you know, law firms get involved in human rights defenders or rule of law activities and institution building or environmental issues or humanitarian. Would your uh, advice to those pro bono firms is that they should think about registering or, or they'll be possibly on the wrong side of uh, the Department of Justice? Well, the undertaking of uh, litigation on a pro bono basis by lawyers anyway, um, is going to come within the exemption. Um, um, so you just have to have an understanding in advance. You need to think strategically before you enter into any engagement agreements about what the scope of that engagement is going to consist of. If it's just litigation um, or representing a party in an investigation, whether it's administrative or criminal in nature, <clears throat> you will be within the safe harbor of the legal representation exemption. Um, I'm happy to say that I am now a registered agent of a foreign principal because my firm on a pro bono basis took on representation of the International Criminal Court in connection with um, the imposition of an executive order um, under IEPA that this administration executed. And, um, you know, I knew that appealing to OFAC, for example, 
on the facts regarding the merits of this sanctions regime would be within the safe harbor. But because the sanctions regime is so political in nature, it is inextricably intertwined with potential policy arguments. And um, I, in particular, did not want to be in the position of running a foul affair. So we registered under FARA to give us the, the freedom of maneuver to do everything we needed to do in furtherance of our clients' interests. So I, I think the Craig case case was tried in D.C., if I remember correctly, correct? Yes. Right. So it was a D.C. case. But I think the other interesting question is if, under Renee's view, if you did the law firm in law, but if you decided to write a white paper and publish the white paper, then I think you'd have to probably register under Farah because you were trying to influence this issue in a general That's way. That's right. That's right. You've stepped outside that narrow silo of protected activity for <clears throat> a firm. So again, especially for lawyers, it's critical to scope out in advance um, what you're going to do and not do. And it's wise to infuse in your engagement agreements what you're not going to do in addition to what you are going to do. Because the first thing the department is going to do is look at your engagement agreement and see what you agreed to. Um, and then they'll look, of course, at what you actually wound up <clears throat> doing. And if there is overlapping activity that doesn't come within the scope of this narrow exemption, they may find that even though a certain category of conduct was exempt, other things you did fell outside the scope of the exemption for legal representation. In the last couple of minutes, I think we might want to raise a conversation you and I have had, which is there's confusion about 18 U.S.C. 951 and potential FISA court issues and the FISA Act statute. So could you help explain in the final minutes unclear this confusion about 951 and potential FISA issues? Right. So 18 U.S.C. 951 is a section in the, in the criminal code. Obviously, it's Title 18. And uh, there's been a lot of confusion about it in connection with, with FARA, in part because it uses the term you know, agent of a foreign power. Uh, that statute goes back to the 1917 era when the Espionage Act was enacted. So it far predates FARA. And it's often confused by the media. In my experience, a lot of the times FBI agents and prosecutors were confused. In a nutshell, 951 makes it a crime to act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government without prior notice to the attorney general. Um, and, and the term agent is defined as an individual who agrees to operate within the United States subject to the direction and control of a foreign government or official. There's some narrow exemptions that you might imagine, including a, um, a commercial <clears throat> exemption. But, you know, this is a criminal statute and, and the courts have construed it broadly um, to apply not just to espionage-like cases, um, but because the statutory language is so elastic um, to apply in almost any instance where the U.S. government is using it in furtherance of a national security purpose. We use 951 to charge cases involving clandestine procurement type activities in the United States. Um, there's, there are advantages to the Justice Department in charging a case under 951 than the Espionage Act um, from an evidentiary burden to proof standpoint, uh, BOJ doesn't have to prove that information at issue related to the national defense and that it therefore was closely held. That is a hurdle sometimes in charging cases under the Espionage Act. Um, there's been a slew of 951 cases that the department has charged. Um, uh, they charged a group of Chinese government operatives under Operation Fox Hunt who were trying to put pressure on uh, people in the United States, trying to lure them back to the United States. Um, uh, there was a case involving uh, Twitter employees charged uh, with accessing private information in accounts of Twitter users and providing that information to Saudi government officials. Um, the Maria Butina case, they got a lot of public notice. The media reported initially as a FARA case. It was not a FARA case. She pled to a conspiracy to act as an agent of a foreign, uh, uh, as an agent of a Russian government official uh, to whom she was providing information about Americans in a position to influence US politics. So those are examples of 951 cases. I think we're gonna see more and more of them. Um, I don't expect under the new Department of Justice enforcement of FARA or 951 to slacken in the least. Uh, this is not an area of enforcement that has really been buffeted by any politics. I think it's just a recognition by the department and our partner law enforcement agencies that combating malign foreign influence um, has to be a high priority of the Department of Justice. And so in the form of FARA, 
It's going to continue to impact us as lawyers representing clients who are worried about their FARA exposure risk and ourselves as lawyers and law firms and what our own exposure may be. Well, thank you, David. I, I can tell you that your, your transition to the private sector has demonstrated your time management because it's exactly one o'clock. So it's exactly <laughs> the 60 minutes. That'll be 600. No, it's a, <laughs> I know. So get, given your billing that you mentioned the SCADM, I figure that's about two or three days of your billing. <laughs> not, not particularly complicated, but I think I, I want to, I can't thank you enough because I think almost everyone stayed for the entire seminar. It, this is a new area, a new practice that many of potentially people can run afoul of. So I can't thank you enough for bringing this to the attention of the committee and doing such a wonderful job in exploring it and I know we'll be talking to you more in the future about fire-related issues, and we're looking forward to the extraordinary task force you're running that will solve and resolve any ambiguity in the statute. And if there are any left, we'll blame you, David, for this issue, because you clearly have- Fair enough, fair enough. I can't thank you enough. And on behalf of the committee, thank you so much, and look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks, thanks to the ABA, and thanks to you, Harvey. Thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.